Pain is the number one presenting complaint to the emergency department. Abdominal pain, chronic pain, chest pain, fracture pain, headache, back pain. There is likely not a shift that goes by where emergency clinicians don't treat pain. For the past three decades, that treatment of pain has increasingly moved toward a one-size-fits-all approach to pain, where pain equals opioids. Dilaudid, morphine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, oxycodone, these are the tools that we have reached for and prescribed for the past decades. If pain was the nail, opioids were the hammer. But oh, how foolish that approach has been. Let's set the record straight. Pain is not a singular process. It is not a nail. Pain involves multiple processes. Inflammation, nociception, physiologic processing, remodeling, neuropathy. Traumatic pain is different than ischemic pain, is different from inflammatory pain, is different from neuropathic pain, is different from psychosomatic pain. And acute pain, sure as heck, is different than chronic pain. If we in medicine are indeed scientists, how the heck did we get doped into thinking that all pain can be treated with a single class of medications? Today, on the Emergency Medical Minute, we continue our series on Colorado ASAP's 2017 Opioid Prescribing and Treatment Guidelines. Our topic, Alternatives to Opioids, also known as ALTO. An approach to pain which arms emergency clinicians with multiple drugs and tools with which to treat pain. Tordal, Haldol, lidocaine drips, trigger point injections, the list goes on. The goal is for opioids to be second to last line for every type of pain. Our host and podcaster, Rachel Duncan, is an ED pharmacist at Swedish Medical Center, alto savant, and an intimidatingly smart lady. This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. My name is Rachel Duncan, and I am one of the members of the Colorado Opioid Safety Collaborative. Welcome to the ED Nurse Education Series. Today, we're going to be talking about the ED opioid pilot that we will be implementing in 2017. Now, what is the Colorado Opioid Safety Collaborative? Well, this is really a partnership between a few different organizations, the first being the Colorado Hospital Association. The other important chapter here is the Colorado chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP. We'll also be working very closely with Colorado Emergency Nurses Association, and that's where a lot of this education in this presentation, as well as in the toolkit that you'll be receiving, comes from. So other nursing members from the ENA, who will be presenting this information to you. So there's many others who care about the opioid epidemic gripping our nation, and we all think this is a very important thing. So why are we all participating? A couple reasons. Working in the ER, you probably already know that pain is the most common reason for admission into the emergency department. Colorado is really at the center of this U.S. opioid epidemic. You've probably heard that term thrown around now, even in the mainstream media. 
Colorado has the 12th highest rate of misuse and abuse of prescription opioids across all 50 states. So we've almost cracked the top 10 at this point. In fact, 40% of Colorado adults admit to the misuse of prescription medication, and majority of that is painkillers. Don't let anyone tell you that this is a heroin issue. It's not. That is also a problem down the road, but it's really a prescription opioid issue. In fact, two-thirds of the overdoses from opioids is from pharmaceuticals versus one-third from heroin. Now, eventually, patients will get to the point where they are consuming heroin, but how do they get there? Very few patients actually go out and just decide to do heroin that day. For the most part, in fact, statistics tell us four out of five heroin users started on prescription opioids. And when they were no longer able to get those opioids or they required more so that they didn't feel awful, they then switched to heroin. So if you really take a step back and look at that, 80% of our heroin problem could possibly be fixed by not getting folks hooked on opioids. So as many of you know, the emergency departments are in a strong position to reduce opioid use in a population that's at very high risk for misuse and abuse. And so for a lot of patients, their first encounter with an opioid is when they come into the ER for some type of painful acute condition. Are there alternative pain management strategies that we could be using for these folks rather than getting them hooked on opioids? One of the more recent publications from the CDC really told us that in as little as three days, patients can become addicted to opioids. When you get to five days, that increases substantially. And then when you get to a week, about 20% of patients will become dependent on opioids. If a patient is treated for a month, they have a 50% chance of having a lifelong addiction to opioids. So just very staggering statistics. It doesn't take long, and we need to stop being a part of the problem. All right, what are we hoping to accomplish by this pilot with CHA, Colorado ASAP, and the Emergency Nurses Association? Well, the objective of the pilot and the metric that we're really looking at is to reduce administration of opioid medications by ED providers through implementation of the Colorado ASAP Emergency Department Opioid Guidelines. And these guidelines have been a project that a, a task force within Colorado ASAP have been working on for the past year. Year. And we just finished taking edits and plan to publish state and nationwide in the next month. So the specific aim here is to reduce ED opioid administration by 15%. And where did we get that number? How do we know that maybe we can reduce this by 15%? Well, Part of these guidelines were actually implemented at my institution, um, Swedish Medical Center, last fall. And we took a three-month post-implementation period and compared it to a three-month pre-implementation period and compared IV opioid usage per patient visit. And what we found in the first month was that we had an almost 30% reduction in IV opioid usage. Over the next two months, that came in at about 20 and 25%. So that was very significant, and we think that 15% is achievable for this pilot. So who all is participating in this pilot? You're probably curious. We're really trying to get a good representation of the state of Colorado, as well as a good representation of all types of hospital, from very small to very large, from community hospital to others. So Swedish Medical Center data will definitely be included in this. We're also going to Boulder Community Health, Sedgwick County Health Center, Gunnison Valley Health, Sky Ridge Medical Center, Yampa Valley Medical Center, 
Poudre Valley Hospital, and the Medical Center of the Rockies. So between those eight, we should have a pretty good representation of the healthcare systems and geographics within Colorado. So let's talk a little bit more about the opioid epidemic. How did we get to where we are today? And what is the real issue here in Colorado and across the nation? So a little bit of background here. 91 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. And that includes both prescription opioids and heroin. And nearly half of all opioid overdose deaths involve a prescription opioid. And that is nationwide. As I discussed earlier, in Colorado, two-thirds of those deaths are due to to prescription opioids versus heroin. So we have even more of a prescription opioid problem here in Colorado. Now, for every one death, there's so much more represented behind that. For every one death, there are over 800 non-medical users in the state of Colorado. There are 130 people who abuse or are dependent. One death represents 32 ED visits for misuse or abuse, and one death represents 10 treatment admissions for abuse. And this is really one of the big issues in Colorado and across the country is the lack of healthcare support for treatment of opioid addiction. Very low percentage of patients that actually need medication-assisted treatment centers can get into them. In fact, it typically takes over 30 days to even get into one if you're lucky. So how did we get to this point where we are today, where we are seeing this many deaths, this many that are addicted, and we don't have a great solution for how to help them with their addiction? And we do have some solutions, but we're incredibly underfunded and under-resourced. How did opioids become our drug of choice? Well, it certainly didn't happen overnight. In fact, it really started to progress in the 1980s when a study was published in 1986 that said opioids do not cause addiction. And so this was a very small study, only 38 patients. They really didn't publish any of their selection criteria. It was not randomized, not blinded. So right there, it tells you that it's not a very strong study. And one thing to note is that two-thirds of patients received less than 20 morphine dosing equivalents per day. So if you think about that, that's really an incredibly small amount of opioids in the grand scheme of things. And the conclusion here from the author was that the risk of addiction when treating chronic pain was less than 1%. And this was published in the Journal of Pain by Dr. Russell Hordenoy. And this really started the push for more opioids and pharmaceutical companies that began aggressively marketing these drugs for non-cancer pain. It also funded nonprofits such as the American Academy of Pain Management and the American Pain Society that was previously headed by the author of this study that published guidelines that really encouraged doctors to expand their use of prescription narcotics. And so really the truth here is that the risk of addiction may be as high as 40% in chronic pain patients. And the author since then has come out and said that he feels that he made a mistake in his conclusion of this study. Now, of course, many of you have heard the term pain as the fifth vital sign. So all patients have a right to pain control. This is definitely true. However, this really got pushed in the late 90s into the early 2000s because the Veterans Administration came out and defined pain as the fifth vital sign. In 2000, the Joint Commission, of course, a very important governing body, disseminated this information throughout American medicine. And then in 2001, the Joint Commission issued pain management standards that instructed hospitals to measure pain and prioritize its treatment. This is, of course, important for our patients. But when you start to combine pain as the fifth vital sign, 
all patients have a right to pain control. We need to prioritize this treatment. And oh, by the way, opioids are the only answer. You can kind of see where we got to where we are today into this opioid epidemic. And I can't really talk about all of this without at least mentioning the role that big pharma played in all of this. Purdue Pharma, who is the producer of OxyContin, had very aggressive marketing strategies, educated providers that because it was a time-release product, it wouldn't cause the high that would lead to addiction. In fact, Purdue and Johnson & Johnson ran educational programs on the responsibility of prescribing opioid medications. But fast forward to 2007 when Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal criminal charges for misleading advertisement regarding the safety of OxyContin time release. And the important thing here is they settled out of court and were fined $600 million, which is a lot of money to any of us. However, their sales of OxyContin over the past decade totaled over $22 billion. So you can tell how that fine is just a drop in the bucket and really didn't deter them from continuing to put out the product and do very heavy advertising for it. In 2010, Purdue did reformulate OxyContin to make it more difficult to inject or snort. Once again, this is the role that big pharma can play in creating this opioid epidemic. So putting all of this together, we sort of understand how we got to where we are today. How do we fix it? One answer is to just stop prescribing opioids. I definitely think that that is a part of it. However, when I think about telling my physicians to stop using something that they've used for decades, I can't just tell them I'm going to take this away. I feel like I have to give them something else in their toolkit to be able to use to treat patients. And that's really where we get into using alternative medications and using our ELTO protocol that we're going to talk about next. So what is ALTO? ALTO stands for Alternatives to Opioids. And this is a strategy that Alexis Lepetra, a DO in an ER in New Jersey, really came up with. And you probably read about it in that article that was published in the New York Times about a year ago now that really looked at the opioid epidemic and at the specific ER that was trying this ALTO approach and really reducing their opioid use. So ALTO is a multimodal, non-opioid approach to analgesia for specific conditions. And the goal here is to really utilize non-opioid approaches as first-line therapy and educate our patients, have a conversation with them. Now, very important key points to remember is that opiates are still available. However, they will be used as second-line treatment. They can also be given as rescue medication. So we're not completely taking these options away. They still have a place in therapy. We're just being more thoughtful about how we use them and also thinking about using medications that hit different receptors and are going to result in a better type of pain control. So another key point of the ALTO approach is to discuss realistic pain management goals with your patients. This is a huge role that nursing can play here. If you can go in and talk to a patient who comes in with a pain of 9 out of 10 and they expect to be at a 0 out of 10, I think that you can play a very important role in managing those expectations. I don't know of very many folks that live at a zero out of 10, let alone can get there before they leave the ER. So talking to them about more functional things that they want to be able to do before they go home, talking about reducing the pain or increasing their comfort, terms like that. We'll talk a little bit about scripting later on and how this can really play a role. 
I also think that discussing addiction potential and side effects that come along with opiates is a very important part of this, and I'm not sure that all of our nursing staff and our physician staff are having that conversation with patients. These are incredibly dangerous drugs. In overdose, they're going to decrease respiratory drive. You can die from overdosing on these medications, and it's not just those that are attempting to overdose or take heroin. These are patients that go home and something in their body changes slightly or a dose goes up or they go into kidney failure, whatever it is, and they can end up with overdose. So it's a pretty narrow therapeutic index, and they we really need to view these as very dangerous medications and really educate our patients on why we're trying to avoid them, understanding that they're still there, but hey, we're going to try some other things first that don't carry the same risk and will still address your pain and increase your comfort. Along with this is the CERTA approach. I'm not going to belabor this much, but this is really going through channels, enzymes, and receptor-targeted analgesia. So this is a shift from symptom-based approach to a mechanistic approach, which for me as a pharmacist, I kind of love. This is very targeted, patient-focused analgesic approach. And basically what it comes down to is that a combination of non-opioid analgesics can lead to using less opioids. So this results in greater analgesia, reduced doses of each medication that you're using. So that's going to lead to hopefully fewer side effects and risks from each medication because you're able to use a lower dose and hopefully in the end lead to a shorter length of stay. We all know how important throughput times are in the ER. We want to make sure we're taking good care of our patients, but also really optimizing our resources. So this all becomes very important for the Alto and CERTA approach. So we're going to talk about a couple of specific medications that may be either somewhat unfamiliar to you, make you uncomfortable to use, or we're going to try using them in a different way than we have previously. And the first one I really want to talk about is lidocaine. And so how does lidocaine work? Well, this really works on central and peripheral voltage-dependent sodium channels. It also hits the NMDA receptors. We really think about using different forms and routes of lidocaine for one, musculoskeletal pain, as well as two, migraines. So I think of lidocaine as also being helpful for some of our neuropathic pain. So how can we use lidocaine? Well, we can use it topically, right? We have lidoderm patches, the 5% patches. Over the counter, they also have the 4% patches. So if a patient can't afford to pay for the 5% patches, they can actually get them over the counter. You can use up to three patches. So this is going to be really great for some rib fracture pain, as well as just think about your giving the patient a patch that they can put directly on the area of pain and just mentally how does that really benefit them, just seeing that go directly on their source of pain. Just remember to have that 12-hour lidocaine-free period. We typically put them on, I like to put them on at night for patients so they can rest more comfortably. Now, another way that we can use lidocaine that I think is often forgotten is intravenously. And this is probably something that sounds a little bit strange to you. When you think of lidocaine IV, you're probably thinking of ACLS and ventricular arrhythmia, right? So someone's pulses VTAC or VFib, and you're going to go ahead and give them a bolus. It's an antiarrhythmic, so we're really trying to pop them out of that, and then you can put them on a drip. Now, it's kind of like an older therapy. It's fallen out of favor due to amiodarone. However, 
lidocaine IV is also incredibly valuable for pain. In fact, it's been studied extensively in the perioperative period, and there are a couple of studies that have been done in the ER specifically for renal colic or kidney stones, comparing lidocaine IV to morphine IV and just saying that they are equivalent, and using the lidocaine resulted in good pain control and using less opioids. And so what kind of dose are we talking about here? Well, the recommendation will be 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. So in the average patient, that's going to be somewhere between 100 and 120 milligrams. And we typically put this in an NS mini bag, about 100 mLs, and hang this over 10 minutes with a max of 200 milligrams. We really keep that max at 200 so that we're not getting into any kind of lidocaine toxicity. As you know, any antiarrhythmic can also cause arrhythmia. However, at these lower one-time doses in the ER, it's really pretty benign. In fact, we don't even really recommend that the patient has to be on telemetry. And we do use say caution, monitor patients with a cardiac history, especially very severe elderly, then I would definitely put them on a cardiac monitor or maybe try something different. But overall, I'm usually okay with trying a one-time dose of lidocaine in any patient that's having especially renal colic, abdominal pain, migraine, and we really use it for any patient that we just want to be opioid sparing. The nice thing is although that lidocaine infusion is only over 10 minutes, they really get a sustained analgesic effect over 24 hours. For patients that might get a dose of Toradol and fluids and maybe a little bit of morphine for a kidney stone, I'll have nurses ask me, should I still give the IV lidocaine? And my answer is yes, because they're going to go home and still be dealing with this pain, and that's going to give them better pain control over the next 24 hours. So just remember that at low IV doses, lidocaine is generally benign. In fact, at my hospital, we changed our high-risk medication administration policy to allow for these low doses of lidocaine to be given anywhere in the hospital. So you don't need to be at a higher level of care in the ER, the ICU, you can actually receive these anywhere. And we allow a drip at a very low dose to continue if they get admitted for up to 24 hours. And by doing so, we're really being safe and not getting into where patients will start to accumulate it and cause some of that toxicity that you can be thinking of when you're thinking of lidocaine. Now, the last way that we really use lidocaine is trigger point injections. And if you've ever had a trigger point injection, you know how magical they can be. So this is really going to be beneficial for one, musculoskeletal pain, where the patient can really point to a point of pressure and tension and say, it hurts right here. And so if you palpate that and they kind of flinch, we call it the flinch test, then they're probably a pretty good candidate for a marcaine or lidocaine trigger point injection. And so what the physician is going to do is really palpate that, kind of squeeze the skin together and push a small needle into there and inject two or three cc's of lidocaine that's going to help relax that and address that specific point of pain. And so if you want to go ahead and YouTube that, there's some really great YouTube videos and ask some of your physicians, hey, do you know how to do a trigger point injection? Because they should. It's one of the most important things that you can do for pain. The other type of pain that it can be incredibly effective for is migraine. So if patients have those tension migraine headaches that really come from somewhere in their neck or other places, we can really utilize this to get rid of that and really ease that tension. Now, the next medication that I really want to emphasize here is ketamine. 
And when I say ketamine, you're probably thinking of your excited delirium patient that took too much methamphetamines and is running around naked in the street that you really need to get down. And so that's going to be a five per kilo IM injection in their hip. They come to you, they're in a fetal position and much more calm. However, ketamine is very dose dependent. And so if you can remember anything from this, I just think of ketamine as a very dichotomous medication. So at very, very low doses, it can be incredibly effective for pain. And then at 10 times the dose is what I want to use for sedation. And the reason here is that ketamine acts on our NMDA receptors. And basically what it's going to do is at higher doses cause that dissociation that we want to see when we're resetting a bone, putting something back in place, trying to do a quick procedure. We especially like to use ketamine in children. And so really at that dose, we're thinking of at least one to two per kilo IV or three to five per kilo IM injections. So we're thinking here, you know, 150, 200 milligrams IV for a procedure versus for pain, I'm using about a 10th of that. Really the dose that I like to go in at and stay at is 0.2 milligram per kilogram bolus. So when you're thinking about your average patient, this is going to be 15 milligrams. So incredibly smaller than what you would give to knock someone out couple of important things here to remember is that if you are giving an IV, make sure you're doing it, even at the small dose, a very slow IV push. So I recommend over at least five minutes. So this is sometimes a little bit annoying for your nursing workflow. So I would plan to have other things to do in the room while you're pushing it. I know at my institution, I was able to get a much more dilute form of ketamine. So rather than the very concentrated vials that you're probably used to seeing, like 100 milligrams per ml, we were able to get a ketamine dilute product that is 10 milligrams per ml in a pre-filled 5cc syringe. So the entire syringe has only 50 milligrams in it. And in our pump system, my nurses can twist that into the tubing and infuse it over the pump in as much as five to 10 minutes, which make it a little bit easier for them to continue with their workflow. So I'd certainly suggest that you work with your nursing leadership and pharmacy leadership to see if that might be an option. So besides IV, ketamine can also be given, of course, IM, which I would probably just reserve for those excited delirium patients, and then also intranasally. I think we often forget about that, especially in adults, and don't really utilize our atomizers as much as we could. Now think about those patients that roll through the front door, don't come in via EMS from some type of sporting event that have something dislocated or a fracture that you can clearly see. They don't have an IV because they didn't come in via EMS. What is something that you can do immediately for them? Well, intranasal ketamine is something that can go up the nose immediately and start getting on board and that patient really feels like you're addressing it right away. And then you can work on getting the IV in them, um, maybe getting some nitrous oxide on them if that's available in your ER so they can relax and not feel as much pain. And that can definitely help expedite your throughput time so you're not having to completely knock them out until you can get that bone reset. So for intranasal, I typically just recommend a flat dose of the 50 milligrams. And for that, I'm going to use the more concentrated product, the 100 milligrams per ml. Because of course, if you use the dilute product, you're not going to be able to get five cc's up the nose. That's just sloppy for everyone. Um, so use the more concentrated product. Now, a couple of things to remember about ketamine. Um, why don't we go higher than 0.2? Why don't we go lower than one per kilo? Why don't we go in that in-between period? 
Well, ketamine is definitely a dissociative, and if you don't get enough of it, you kind of end up in this in-between period where you're just hallucinating and you're aware that you're hallucinating, and it's very uncomfortable for the patient. Um, so we're really trying to avoid that. So I think of ketamine as having this very narrow therapeutic index on either side and nothing in between. So one caution that I do say for ketamine is that do not use it in patients that have a significant psych history or especially a significant history of PTSD. They have an even more narrow therapeutic index with ketamine and you can actually push them into flashbacks of some of those memories and that's just really not productive for anyone. So I would suggest avoiding it in those types of patients and really sticking to our dichotomous dosing regimen. So what types of pain would I use this for? So musculoskeletal pain, definitely very important. So you'll see that in that algorithm, as well as joint dislocation and fracture. Like I said, you can get it up the nose or you can give a dose to augment whatever other pain medications you're giving them until you're able to get a sedative on board and reset that bone. So what are some other options besides lidocaine and ketamine that we can be utilizing for our patients? Now, I think Toradol is a pretty dreamy drug. I think it's incredibly effective. If you've ever had it, it definitely addresses the reason why a lot of folks are in pain. You're not just hitting the mu receptor and masking that pain. You're actually addressing why they're having that pain. So inflammation often accompanies why people have pain. Now, if you're thinking in your head, what are some of the precautions that we think of before we give Toradol? And a couple that come to mind are renal dysfunction. We really want to avoid it because it's going to decrease the blood flow to the kidneys. And so this is really true for all NSAIDs, but particularly Toradol because it's a very strong IV NSAID. And then, of course, any kind of platelet dysfunction or bleeding. So if they're going to surgery or something like that or already on anticoagulants, we may avoid using it. However, one thing that I do want to note is that I know at my institution, we were using 60 milligrams IM and 30 milligrams IV. Well, if you look at literature and specifically one-time doses in the ER literature, there's really no greater efficacy over 10 milligrams IV. So if you think of that, why would you keep going higher if you're not getting more of an effect and introducing more risk? So we have kept all of our IV doses in the ER at 15 milligrams and our IM doses at 30 milligrams. This really opens up the door for being able to use it for some of those patients that are kind of on the edge that you're like, mm, they're borderline, a little bit pre-renal right now patients like that, that you might be like, okay, but it's a one-time low dose, I may be able to get away with it. So that can definitely open up other doors and options for your provider. So Toradol is going to be great for many pain indications, including MSK pain, renal colic, migraine, really any of the pain pathways that we're going to talk about. Another medication that sometimes gets put in a box is haloperidol or haldol. Now, when I say that, you're probably, again, thinking about an excited delirium patient or some type of psychiatric patient that really needs that typical antipsychotic. However, haloperidol at low doses is incredibly effective for nausea, chronic abdominal pain, and migraines. So keep this in your back pocket for those types of patients. I'm talking about using two and a half milligrams IV to start with, and you can always repeat that dose. I really don't get overly concerned about some of the tardive dyskinesia or QTC prolongation until we start to get over five milligrams. So think of Haldol for nausea, especially living in Colorado, we deal with a lot of cannabinoid-induced hyperemesis. And if you've ever dealt with 
with patients that come in time and time again for this hyperemesis and refuse to change their habits, your typical antiemetics are really ineffective. Zofran does almost nothing. Compazine fenergan really doesn't touch it. There's some evidence to suggest that haloperidol at low doses will help with that, along with capsaicin topical, which can also be an option. The last medication that I really want to emphasize here is bentol or dicyclamine. Now, how this works is that it is an antispasmodic and anticholinergic agent that acts to alleviate smooth muscle spasms in the GI tract. So think of those patients that present that are doubled over having incredibly crampy abdominal pain. This is the perfect medication for those patients. It's available in both oral as well as IM injection. Important thing here is that it is IM only. Please do not give it intravenously. This is one of the most common nursing medication errors. Just remember there, IM only. I typically give somewhere between 10 and 20 milligrams, and that's the same for oral or IM. And again, this is going to be great for abdominal pain. Now, I would use caution in the elderly. It is an anticholinergic agent, so it can cause some issues. However, for a pretty young, otherwise healthy adult, I would definitely have this be my go-to for some of that abdominal pain that we see. So let's talk now specifically about a couple of the ED pain pathways that you'll be looking at. And there will be flyers hanging around your ER that will be looking at each of these pain pathways. And so really the five different indications that we have specifically isolated as benefiting from the ALTO approach and having really great evidence to back it up. The first is headache or migraine. And I hope that many of you are already familiar with these options and understand that you should never be using opioids for a headache or a migraine. We have very strong literature to support that we should not be using these agents. They actually worsen headache and migraine. They can have rebound, worse headache and migraine. So please, if anything, if you have a physician that insists on writing for this, I would suggest going up and just asking them, hey, I actually have between 12 and 15 other options that we can use, and we can use multiple of them together for what we call a migraine cocktail. Let's avoid using that opiate. So immediate first-line therapy for headache migraine, we typically think of, don't forget the little things here. So give them a liter of fluids and some high-flow oxygen. That will fix half of your migraines, right? A lot of patients come in dehydrated or they're at elevation. So I would definitely consider doing those two things right off the bat, regardless of why they're having a migraine. We also sort of think of three different medications that are pretty well established for the initial migraine cocktail, and that is Decadron, Catorolac, and Reglan. So using these three medications together and getting them on board right away can certainly be very effective. And then here, don't forget about your trigger point injection with either lidocaine or marcaine. So really challenge or suggest to your physician, do you want to go in and see if there's a way to do a trigger point injection so we can avoid all of these pharmacotherapy and get them better faster and out the door faster. We also have about 10 alternative options that you can think about. So we have Phenergan, we have Compazine, Imitrex. Don't forget about Imitrex. We also have low doses of haloperidol, magnesium, valproic acid. If they have a tension component, think about that trigger point injection or adding Flexeril or Valium. And then you can also do a lidoderm patch if they have a point of tension. So I just think the nice thing about this pathway is that you have so many options. You really shouldn't have to get to the end of 
of the algorithm for any patient. And if you do, honestly, they may need to be admitted for a neuroobs to figure out what's going on. The second indication that we really emphasize Alto for is musculoskeletal pain. And we really have this split into non-IV therapies versus IV therapy options. And so if you think of the advantage of not having to put an IV in a patient, you automatically think of decreasing throughput time. So of course, don't forget about giving them a gram of Tylenol, right? Along with some Motrin. You also have Flexeril or Valium orally that you can give for any kind of tension muscle component. We have gabapentin. I typically give a dose of three to 600 times one, and you can discharge them on that dose at bedtime and have them follow up with their PCP. We also have lidoderm patches, which we talked about. If they can identify a specific area of pain that they can put a patch on, that's going to be incredibly powerful for them. We have ketamine, intranasal, that can be very effective for musculoskeletal pain. And then, of course, the main star of this entire pathway is going to be your trigger point injection. So getting your PA or nurse practitioner or physician to go and get in the room and do that with the patient can be very effective and avoid all of these other therapies. We also have IV options. So we talked about our IV ketamine, Toradol, Decadron, and Valium that are all in our back pocket that we can use if it's incredibly severe. Renal colic is the next indication that I really think has some strong literature and some really unique options that we can be using. So immediate first-line therapy is give them that gram of Tylenol orally, give them that small dose of Toradol, and start them on a liter of fluids. This, I think most patients would be eligible to get these three therapies. Second-line IV therapy here, we're then going to go to lidocaine IV. This is incredibly effective for renal colic. So we are ordering probably a dozen lidocaine drips in my ER per day, specifically for renal colic and a couple other indications. And we also have two non-IV alternative options. So the first is DDAVP or desmopressin, which we can give intranasally. I now keep this stocked in my ERs. This is really good for those spasms that happen around those kidney stones in the ureters because it really relaxes that smooth muscle. So those patients that are doubling over in pain every few minutes when they get that spasm, think about using intranasal DDAVP. And then, of course, intranasal ketamine. There was a study published recently looking at using that for renal colic. And so that's another option to keep in your back pocket. The fourth indication, and one of the most common reasons that a lot of patients come to the ER is chronic abdominal pain. This is one of the hardest things to treat. They can be incredibly frustrating. Sometimes they often come in on chronic narcotics. So giving them more opioids may not necessarily be beneficial. That mu receptor is already occupied. You really need to be focusing on other receptors. So immediate first-line therapy can include Reglan, Compazine, low-dose Benadryl, and Bentol that we talked about. And that's really addressing a lot of the reasons why they could be having abdominal pain. We also have alternative options. We talked about the low-dose haloperidol. Low-dose ketamine can be effective here, as well as our IV lidocaine. So those are all three alternative options. And between all of these, we should be addressing any of those different reasons why they could be having that chronic abdominal pain. We have six or seven receptors here that we're able to hit by using this multimodal therapy and not having to just continue to pound that mute receptor. 
The last pathway that I want to talk about is extremity fracture and joint dislocation. We kind of already talked about this when we talked about intranasal ketamine. So these patients often roll in through the front door. They don't come in via EMS. They just drive straight to the hospital. So immediate first-line therapy before you even get an IV in them can be a gram of Tylenol, ketamine intranasal, and then nitrous oxide. This can be incredibly effective. I know some folks say it's not as effective at elevation due to lower percentage of oxygen, and that may be true. But if you think about it, you're giving the patient control over something that they can do to address their pain and discomfort. They can put that mask on their face. It's self-regulating because it's going to fall off when they get sleepy. And so it's something that they have control over and can immediately put on themselves to start feeling better. You can then set them up for what's called ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia. And this is something that your physicians, PAs, and MPs will be getting trained on. And this is basically using lidocaine or marcaine to do a perineural infiltration and trying to cut off the source of that pain so that you then have more time to set up for a good reduction. So this is another very useful pathway for patients that we see quite commonly. So to wrap this up, really want to focus on what can nursing do in this pilot to really make it a success. So I think education is a huge part of it. So some of your frontline leaders are hopefully letting you know why we need to do this project. And I think that goes back to sort of the intro and background that we talked about. We know Colorado has a problem. Pain is the most common reason that patients come to the ER. Vicodin and Norco have been the number one prescribed medication for the past five to six years. Again, we talked about 80% of new heroin users report using prescription opioids first. Now, after listening to this presentation, hopefully you understand that there are safer and more efficacious medications with fewer side effects. So really, what do we start doing? Well, let's educate each other. So some of your nursing leaders and managers and charge nurses should hopefully be talking to you and helping you learn about these new multimodal opioid-free pain management pathways that are going to be posted around your ER. You can also work in a partnership with your physicians to limit the use of opioids. I really think that half of the prescribing that physicians do is something that you come up and suggest to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, do you mind throwing that order in? And then also be proactive with patient and family concerns. So provide them with educational resources. We're going to have a resource in this toolkit that is all about how you can do scripting, nurse scripting, to go in and talk to a patient that really manage up some of these alternative therapies and have a very open discussion with them. You can talk to them about realistic pain goals. I cannot emphasize this enough. You can use scripting regarding control of pain versus relief of pain and then promote increasing comfort. So don't forget about the little things, dimming the lights, getting them warm blankets, readjusting them in the bed. If they're allowed to have ice chips or water, just something to help increase their comfort. Anything there, addressing their concerns. Before you leave the room, say, is there anything else I can do for you right now? Assuring them this therapy, these multiple agents I'm about to get you should address your pain. I'm going to come in and reassess you in whatever time is appropriate, typically 30 minutes, and say, we have many more options that we can try. I promise we're going to get you to a better degree of comfort. And then just doing a lot of patient education. So educate the patient and families on how to use pain assessment tools, talking to them more about functional 
pain and um, increasing their ability to do certain functions before they go home versus just using a numerical scale. And then talking to them about these non-pharmacologic alternatives. Like I said, manage them up. Talk about some of the risks and side effects associated with the opioid therapy that they may have expected because that's what they've seen on the news. That's what they've talked to other family members that have gotten in the ER. Why are we trying to avoid those? Why are we using these other therapies? I think you'll find that depending on your patient population, patients are very receptive and eager to learn. Pain assessment is, of course, very important here. So just making sure that you're doing appropriate reassessments at the appropriate time based off of what you give them. And then, of course, just again, I cannot emphasize enough using that scripting that medication will help control your pain and improve your comfort. So for this pilot, just to finish up, I want you to have a sense of who else is involved. So what is going on behind the scenes that is hopefully supporting your practice at the bedside? Well, of course, we're having project champions, both from ED nursing, ED physicians. Your hospital leadership is having presentations to them so that they understand why we're trying to do this, as well as a lot of other support behind the scenes from IT as well as pharmacy. We're implementing policy changes that are going to support your practice at the bedside. So the first thing we're going to do is update our procedural sedation policy to make it very clear what ketamine dosing requires a timeout and is actually sedating the patient for some type of procedure versus what can be used at the bedside without all of that because it's such a low dose for pain. And so that's being implemented before you ever even start using this. We're also updating our high-risk medication administration policies so that lidocaine and ketamine at these lower doses can be given in less acute areas so it doesn't require ER or CCU oversight. These patients can really be admitted to anywhere in the hospital if they want to continue these therapies. So I think that that will be very powerful. As you use them, you're not just then sending them to the floor where they can't get these therapies. No, we can definitely continue using them. And although this is starting in the ER, You'll find, as I did at my own institution, that this starts to permeate into the inpatient side. These nurses and physicians get curious about what we're using down in the ER. Patients go upstairs and request IV lidocaine, and they look at them like, what? We can't give that here. Well, we can now. And so you'll find that you'll start to do education on the inpatient side and really have a better partnership with them. Now, a lot of stuff is going on behind the scenes with pharmacy and IT support. So CPOE, we're creating pain treatment order sets split up by indication to make this much easier for physicians to order. We're creating order strings for unique entries that are clearly labeled for pain so that there's not confusion when you're ordering something like lidocaine or ketamine that can clearly be for a different indication. Also, most of you probably use some type of smart pump. So we're working with your pharmacy group to make sure we're updating the drug library in there for the addition of new medications, again, clearly labeling them for pain. So example, I have some labeled as lidocaine for cardiac issues versus lidocaine bolus for pain. Same thing with ketamine for pain drip versus ketamine for sedation. So trying to make this as clear as possible and keep all of those safety guards in place to prevent medication errors. And then we'll also be doing data collection. So of course we have to have that endpoint to see if we're successful, right? So as we talked about, our primary outcome will really be opioid decrease in the ER. 
as well as looking at patient satisfaction. That is, of course, just as important. Does it matter if we're decreasing opioid usage if patients are not satisfied and their pain is not controlled? So we'll really be pulling a couple questions from probably a Prescani survey that gets sent home with your patients, looking at their overall satisfaction as well as for pain control. And then we'll be working with your pharmacy and IT team to pull reports looking at opioid usage per patient visit. And we're going to organize all of this data by month. So we're going to look at a six-month pre-implementation period from 2016 and a six-month post-implementation period from 2017, which is June to November. So that will be coming up. And again, we'll get this data back to you guys so that you can see, are we progressing? Are we making a difference? Are we decreasing usage? Are we increasing the usage of alternatives, which we're also looking at? So hopefully you'll be getting very real-time data that either hopefully supports what you're doing or tells you where you can be doing better. So of course, throughout this process, you're going to have support from CHA, Colorado ASAP, Colorado ENA will be particularly helpful for our nursing staff, really being their support system on teaching some of the scripting and other education. We have numerous contacts from previous projects. Like I said, myself and one of my physicians, Don Stater, have done this at Swedish and are definitely available for questions. We're leaving your nursing leaders with a complete toolkit and educational resources for posters for your education board, slide sets, podcasts, scripting, badge buddy cards that you can use for a quick reference. And then overall, I just want to encourage you that you can do this. We can change our practice. I'm sure in your head you're already thinking about barriers from patient perspective as well as from physician perspective who have been having the same prescribing patterns for decades that we're now trying to change. Well, we're doing a very united effort here. Our physician champion is going around talking to your physician groups, really managing up these different therapies, showing them how to do ultrasound-guided regional blocks, showing them how to do trigger point injections, talking about these alternatives that they probably never used or considered before. But you, as a reminder to those physicians, hey, why don't we try IV lidocaine instead of another dose of morphine for their renal colic? It can be a very powerful suggestion. So just work as a team. You can change your practice. If we could do it at Swedish, you can certainly do it where you currently practice. We are available for any questions. We've left contact resources with your nursing leaders. So please reach out for support. We all share the same frustrations and the same barriers, but we're working through those together. And we are going to make a change. You are one of the first pilot sites that will be doing this. However, the goal based off of this pilot result will be to have every ER in the state of Colorado adapt these guidelines that are going to be published next month um, and have them adapt them by the end of 2018. So you're really setting the tone for the rest of the hospitals in the state and hopefully in the nation. So we thank you for your participation and we will work on this together.